0: This is The Memo, by Howard Marks. Today, we are featuring another episode of The Rewind, in which Howard looks back on some of his memos over the years, discusses their origins, and considers their relevance to today's financial environment. Last week, Howard spoke about Dare to be Great. In this episode, he'll address the follow-up memo, Dare to be Great 2, which was originally published on April 8, 2014. Here's Howard.
1: I think the idea of a sequel was that I have more to say on the same subject. But I think that the question of daring was posed more explicitly in this one than in the first one. My realization was everybody dares to be great. That's not the question. Do you dare to be different? Do you dare to be wrong? Do you dare to look wrong? Everybody dares to have a good outcome. The question is, do you dare to have the bad outcomes that are required in the search for the good outcome? And I thought that was a much stronger statement. It was the passage of time and getting eight years older and eight years more of experience. The experience of the global financial crisis was very powerful. And the point is, we did things which are obvious in retrospect. I always say that success is obvious in retrospect. At the time, it probably isn't. And in fact, the things you did that look so obvious now were probably very difficult at the time. Bruce Karsh and I have collaborated for over three decades, and we support each other in our efforts, which helps us to do what we have to do because it's so difficult at the time. But we give each other the nerve to dare to be different and dare to be wrong. And we're fortunate that for the most part, it's worked out. Bruce runs our opportunities funds and he's done so for the last 33 years. He has to buy the debt of companies that are in bankruptcy or believed to be headed for bankruptcy in very difficult climates, which is when we do the most buying. And that's not easy. And I think that his willingness to be great, but his willingness to take a chance on being wrong is what makes us so successful. We were very unconventional, I think, in the period between the two memos. And it was rewarded. And maybe that's what I was writing about. And I remember Lehman Brothers went under September 15th of 08. And sometime within the next 30 days, a friend of mine who's a reporter said, you know, we were having a chat, this and that. He says to me, well, what are you doing? I said, we're buying. He says, you are? Like, how could that be? And that's indicative of how far from the mainstream our actions can be from time to time you want to have unconventional behavior that leads to above average outcomes i think that the experience in between the two memos probably had a very formative effect in that regard we went very negative on the climate in 05 67 and we prepared as best we could for something bad ahead which we didn't know what it was going to be and then, especially after Lehman went under, we turned super aggressive. We invested, I mean Bruce, for his fund alone, invested $450 million a week on average for 15 weeks under very treacherous conditions. And our firm as a whole invested probably 150% of that. So we really had to take a chance. But after Lehman went under, I think I wrote my first memo a day later, and I said, now what? I said, what are we going to do now? You have the Lehman bankruptcy, and lots of other things are going wrong in the world at the same time, AIG and so forth. And you have no ability to analyze whether the financial sector is going to melt down or not. I simply said, you can say it's going to melt down or you can say it's not. I said, but if you say it's going to melt down, what do you do about it? Well, number one, how high a probability can you put on it? And number two, what would you do about it? And number three, would it work? And number four, most of the time the world doesn't melt down. So we're going to assume that it's not going to melt down and we're going to do the job we were hired to do and we're going to put money to work at much lower prices than the day before. It was not subject to any deep macro analysis. Another thing I said is if the world melts down, it won't matter what we did in these days, but if it doesn't melt down and we didn't buy, then we didn't do our job. So it turned out to be an easy decision to make took a little nerve, especially on Bruce's part, to implement it. It's one of the things that I believe very strongly. The best investments begin in discomfort. That's the essence of contrarianism. If I'm a stock and it's up a few thousand percent this year, why? Because everybody thinks it's great. Everybody loves it. And you only have good performance from securities that the masses feel good about. But you conclude that it went too far, that it's overpriced and it's not that good. So you sell it or you short it or whatever. The point is over there, there's 10 million investors who all think it's great. And over here is you saying it's not so great. If that's not uncomfortable, what would be? But these are the kinds of things you have to do to have the great opportunities. In one of the memos, I talked about the warmth in the herd. If you're part of the herd, it's very warm. It's very comfortable. Everybody's going in the same direction. You have a lot of confirmation that your opinion is right. 10 million other people are doing the same thing. But the big money is made from doing the things that other people won't do. But those things, by definition, have to be uncomfortable. And Dave Swenson from Yale says in his book that successful investing requires the assumption of uncomfortably idiosyncratic positions, which is extremely important. So the question is do you dare to be different? Remember, Lord Keynes said that it is better for reputation to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. Because when I was a kid, they used to say, you never got in trouble for buying IBM. Everybody bought IBM. So if you did it too, and it crapped out, then you have good company. But if you shorted IBM and it kept going up, then you're a maverick, and that's terrible one of the most important lessons of investing is that risk avoidance is not a good idea. Risk control should be the goal. Risk management. My partner, Sheldon Stone, says that if you have no defaults in your high-yield bond portfolio, you're probably not taking enough risk. You want to take risk up to the point where it's prudent, not much over that line. But if you never have a default, you're probably investing too safely. If you went out, to the tennis court to play a game against your rival and you said, my goal today is to never double fault, then you'll be so paralyzed on your second serve. Well, first of all, you'll take something off your first serve so you don't have to serve a second serve. But if you fault on the first serve, you'll take everything off the second serve to make sure you get it in the box and he'll kill you. He'll put it away. So that's not a legitimate goal. Just like if you say, my goal is to put together an investment portfolio and I can't have any stocks to go down. Well, the essence of a diversified portfolio is that they won't all do the same thing at the same time. If you work hard enough, I think you can find situations where there's more upside than downside. I call this asymmetry. And if you want to try for good results without totally exposing yourself to bad results, you can stress these asymmetries. Now, most of them, you give up some upside to secure the downside. Maybe that's the equivalent of the second serve. But if you want to be able to make hundreds of percent a year, you probably have to expose yourself to a very substantial possibility of loss. If you don't want to take that much risk, you can pull in the extremes. And by giving up some of the upside, you may be able to offload some of the downside risk. I've been part of many investment committees, and of course, my clients are often investment committees. And I do believe that, you see, in an institution, you have asymmetric payout table for the individuals. Let's start with the university endowment. You know, nobody gets paid for working on the endowment, and nobody participates in the profits. So you have no upside for making a bold decision. If it works out well, all you get is a pat on the back and picture in the alumni newspaper. But if you make a bold decision and it fails, then you get fired, you get dropped from the committee, you get embarrassment in the community. And these things tend to militate against risk-taking. There's no reward if it goes right. There's only punishment if it goes wrong. So that's asymmetric and negative. And the same then for some gal working at a pension fund. And she makes a good investment, she gets a pat on the back, maybe a little raise. She does a really bad investment, she gets fired. So again, asymmetry. You can't get risk-taking behavior from an organization that penalizes error, especially for one where the penalty for error exceeds the reward for success. And again, that's a feature of being an institution. And a bureaucracy. It's really a great challenge, and I believe that I've seen it in action for too many decades, not to mention it. I think it's a fact of life. Unbearable outcomes, intolerable outcomes you shouldn't take. I always say, I don't want to be the skydiver who was successful 98% of the time. Now, I'm sure the skydivers think that it's 100, but I don't engage in activities where success is predicated on doing everything perfectly. There's a basketball player quoted in the memo. Kenny, the Jet Smith, who was a commentator, played basketball, but then was a commentator said, you have to give yourself a chance to fail. If you're not taking any actions that have the possibility of failing, then you're not pushing the limits of what you can do enough. And that goes back to trying to play tennis without ever having a double fault. The only way you can do that is by putting too little mustard on your second serve. In the bond world, prior to the advent of high-yield bonds in 77, 78, that was what they pursued, high-grade credits, which couldn't have a problem, but they yielded too little. Mike Milken and others introduced the high-yield bond new issue in 77 or 78, and you took risk knowingly for profit under reasonable circumstances, and that was a smart thing to do. In 1981, I think it was, I was interviewed on the Financial News Network, which was one of the first business cable stations. And I was asked, how can you buy high-yield bonds when you know some of them are going to default? And it came to me like an epiphany. And I said, the most conservative companies in America are the life insurance companies. How can they insure people's lives when they know they're all going to die? And if you think about the life insurance company, number one, it's a risk they're aware of. The deaths don't come as a surprise, only when maybe, but not the fact that people die. Number two, it's risk you can analyze. And in my day, they used to send a doctor to your house to do a physical. Number three, it's risk you can diversify. So you don't just insure smokers or just bad drivers or just people who live on the San Andreas Fault or just old people. And number four, it's risk that you're well paid to take. So the insurance company figures out what they're going to have to pay out based on probabilities and when, and they charge you a premium so that even if they pay out on that schedule, they'll make money. That's the intelligent bearing of risk for profit. And that's exactly what we try to do in our portfolios. But I keep coming back to the fact that risk control should be your goal, not risk avoidance. We have no control of anything in the short run. One thing I like to say is that we sometimes know what's going to happen. We never know when. So you just can't base your activities on a need to be right in terms of time. One of my colleagues once wrote me a note and he said, if you name a price, don't name a date. And if you name a date, don't name a price. You know, If you say, I think that stock going to 100, you can never be proved wrong. You say, oh, well, I didn't mean yet. But the point is, you just can't be afraid to be wrong because you could never do anything great if you're afraid to be wrong. If Bruce Garsh and I had been afraid of making mistakes, we couldn't have bought $450 million a week after the Lehman bankruptcy. The fact that Bruce did is one of the things that put us on the map. In every career, there are a few things that are pivotal. By definition, they entail uncertainty because if there was no uncertainty or risk or downside, Everybody would do them, so the fact that you did it wouldn't distinguish you. But every once in a while, you get a chance to distinguish yourself by doing something that other people won't do, and you reap great success from that, great rewards. But you have to have the nerve to take that risk, hopefully for good reason. You take these risks for good reason. You don't take it just like, you know, I think I'll buy a lottery ticket. I think I'll put my money on number 17. You do it for a reason. If you're able, then you'll have a higher-than-average success rate doing that. You're still never going to get them all right. But if you can be more right than most others more often with regards to larger stakes, that's how you win.
0: And now, here's Dare to be Great 2 by Howard Marks. In September 2006, I wrote a memo entitled Dare to be Great with suggestions on how institutional investors might approach the goal of achieving superior investment results. I've had some additional thoughts on the matter since then, meaning it's time to return to it. Since fewer people were reading my memos in those days, I'm going to start off repeating a bit of its content and go on from there. About a year ago, a sovereign wealth fund that's an Oak Tree client asked me to speak to their leadership group on the subject of what makes for a superior investing organization. I welcomed the opportunity. The first thing you have to do, I told them, is formulate an explicit investing creed. What do you believe in? What principles will underpin your process? The investing team and the people who review their performance have to be in agreement on questions like these. Is the efficient market hypothesis relevant? Do efficient markets exist? Is it possible to beat the market? Which markets? To what extent? Will you emphasize risk control or return maximization as the primary route to success, or do you think it's possible to achieve both simultaneously? Will you put your faith in macro forecasts and adjust your portfolio based on what they say? How do you think about risk? Is it volatility or the probability of permanent loss? Can it be predicted and quantified a priori? What's the best way to manage it? How reliably do you believe a disciplined process will produce the desired results? That is, how do you view the question of determinism versus randomness? Most importantly, for the purposes of this memo, how will you define success? And what risks will you take to achieve it? In short, in trying to be right, are you willing to bear the inescapable risk of being wrong? Passive investors, benchmark huggers, and herd followers have a high probability of achieving average performance and little risk of falling far short. But in exchange for safety from being much below average, they surrender their chance of being much above average. All investors have to decide whether that's okay, and if not, what they'll do about it. The more I think about it, the more angles I see in the title Dare to be Great. Who wouldn't dare to be great? No one. Everyone would love to have outstanding performance. The real question is whether you dare to do the things that are necessary in order to be great. Are you willing to be different? And are you willing to be wrong? In order to have a chance at great results, you have to be open to being both. Dare to be different. Here's a line from Dare to be great. This just in you can't take the same actions as everyone else and expect to outperform simple but still appropriate for years I've posed the following riddle suppose I hire you as a portfolio manager and we agree you will get no compensation next year if your return is in the bottom nine deciles of the investor universe but 10 million dollars if you're in the top decile what's the first thing you have to do the absolute prerequisite, in order to have a chance at the big money. No one has ever answered it right. The answer may not be obvious, but it's imperative. You have to assemble a portfolio that's different from those held by most other investors. If your portfolio looks like everyone else's, you may do well, or you may do poorly, but you can't do different. And being different is absolutely essential if you want a chance at being superior. In order to get into the top of the performance distribution, you have to escape from the crowd. There are many ways to try. They include being active in unusual market niches, buying things others haven't found, don't like, or consider too risky to touch, avoiding market darlings that the crowd thinks can't lose, engaging in contrarian cycle timing and concentrating heavily in a small number of things you think will deliver exceptional performance. Dare to be great included a 2x2 matrix. It shows that if your behavior is conventional, you're likely to get conventional results, either good or bad. Only if your behavior is unconventional is your performance likely to be unconventional. And only if your judgments are superior is your performance likely to be above average. Of course, it's not that easy and clear-cut, But I think that's the general situation. For those who define investment success as being average or better, three of the four cells of the matrix represent satisfactory outcomes. But if you define success strictly as being superior, only one of the four will do. And it requires unconventional behavior. More from the 2006 memo. The bottom line on striving for superior performance has a lot to do with daring to be great especially in terms of asset allocation, can't lose usually goes hand-in-hand with can't win. One of the investors or the committee's first and most fundamental decisions has to be on the question of how far out the portfolio will venture, how much emphasis should be put on diversifying, avoiding risk and ensuring against below-pack performance, and how much on sacrificing these things in the hope of doing better. In the memo I mentioned my favorite fortune cookie, The Cautious Seldom err or Write Great Poetry. Like the title, Dare to be Great, I find the fortune cookie thought-provoking. It can be taken as urging caution, since it reduces the likelihood of error. Or it can be taken as saying you should avoid caution, since it can keep you from doing great things. Or both. No right or wrong answer, but a choice... And hopefully, a conscious one. It isn't easy being different. In the 2006 memo, I borrowed two quotes from Pioneering Portfolio Management by David Swenson of Yale. They're my absolute favorites on the subject of institutional behavior. Here's the first. Establishing and maintaining an unconventional investment profile... Requires acceptance of uncomfortably idiosyncratic portfolios, which frequently appear downright imprudent in the eyes of conventional wisdom. Uncomfortably idiosyncratic is a terrific phrase. There's a great deal of wisdom in those two words. What's idiosyncratic is rarely comfortable, and in order for something to be comfortable, it usually has to be conventional. The road to above average performance runs through unconventional, uncomfortable investing. Here's how I put it in 2006. Non-consensus ideas have to be lonely. By definition, non-consensus ideas that are popular, widely held, or intuitively obvious are an oxymoron. Thus, such ideas are uncomfortable. Non-conformists don't enjoy the warmth that comes with being at the center of the herd. Further, unconventional ideas often appear imprudent. The popular definition of prudent, especially in the investment world, is often twisted into what everyone does. Most great investments begin in discomfort. The things most people feel good about, investments where the underlying premise is widely accepted, their recent performance has been positive and the outlook is rosy, are unlikely to be available at bargain prices. Rather, Bargains are usually found among things that are controversial, that people are pessimistic about, and that have been performing badly of late. But it isn't easy to do things that entail discomfort. It's no coincidence that distressed debt has been the source of many successful investments for Oaktree. There's no such thing as a distressed company that everyone reveres. In 1988, when Bruce Karsh and I organized our first fund to invest in the debt of companies seemingly at death's door, the very idea made it hard to raise money, and investing required conviction, on the client's part, and our own, that our analysis and approach would mitigate the risk. The same discomfort, however, is what caused distressed debt to be priced cheaper than it should have been, and thus the returns to be consistently high. Dare to be wrong. You have to give yourself a chance to fail. That's what Kenny the Jet Smith said on TV the other night during the NCAA college basketball tournament, talking about a star player who started out cold and as a result attempted too few shots in a game his team lost. It's a great way to make the point. Failure isn't anyone's goal, of course, but rather an inescapable potential consequence Of trying to do really well. Any attempt to compile superior investment results has to entail acceptance of the possibility of being wrong. The matrix I mentioned previously shows that since conventional behavior is sure to produce average performance, people who want to be above average can't expect to get there by engaging in conventional behavior. Their behavior has to be different. And in the course of trying to be different and better, they have to bear the risk of being different and worse. That truth is simply unarguable. There is no way to strive for the former that doesn't require bearing the risk of the latter. The truth is, almost everything about superior investing is a two-edged sword. If you invest, you will lose money if the market declines. If you don't invest, you will miss out on gains if the market rises. Market timing will add value if it can be done right. Buy and hold will produce better results if timing can't be done right. Aggressiveness will help when the market rises, but hurt when it falls. Defensiveness will help when the market falls, but hurt when it rises. If you concentrate your portfolio, your mistakes will kill you. If you diversify, the payoff from your successes will be diminished. If you employ leverage your successes will be magnified. If you employ leverage, your mistakes will be magnified. Each of these pairings indicates symmetry. None of the tactics listed will add value if it's right, but not subtract if it's wrong. Thus, none of these tactics, in and of itself, can hold the secret to dependably above-average investment performance. There's only one thing in the investment world that isn't two-edged, and that's alpha. Superior insight or skill. Skill can help in both up markets and down markets. And by making it more likely that your decisions are right, superior skill can increase the expected benefit from concentration and leverage. But that kind of superior skill by definition is rare and elusive. The goal in investing is asymmetry. To expose yourself to return in a way that doesn't expose you commensurately to risk, And to participate in gains when the market rises to a greater extent than you participate in losses when it falls. But that doesn't mean the avoidance of all losses is a reasonable objective. Take another look at the goal of asymmetry mentioned previously. It talks about achieving a preponderance of gain over loss, not avoiding all chance of loss. To succeed at any activity involving the pursuit of gain, we have to be able to withstand the possibility of loss. A goal of avoiding all losses can render success unachievable, almost as readily as can the occurrence of too many losses. Here are three examples of loss prevention strategies that can lead to failure. I play tennis. But if when I start a match I promise myself that I won't commit a single double fault... I'll never be able to put enough mustard on my second serve to keep it from being easy for my opponent to put away. Likewise, coming out ahead at poker requires that I win a lot on my winning hands and lose less on my losers. But insisting that I'll never play anything but the nuts, the hand that can't possibly be beat, will keep me from playing lots of hands that have a good chance to win but aren't sure things. For a real-life example... Oaktree has always emphasized default avoidance as the route to outperformance in high-yield bonds. Thus, our default rate has consistently averaged just one-third of the universe default rate, and our risk-adjusted return has beaten the indices. But if we had insisted on, and designed compensation to demand, zero defaults, I am sure we would have been too risk-averse, and our performance wouldn't have been as good. As my partner Sheldon Stone puts it, if you don't have any defaults, you're taking too little risk. When I first went to work at Citibank in 1968, they had a slogan that, scared money never wins. It's important to play judiciously, to have more successes than failures, and to make more on your successes than you lose on your failures. But it's crippling to have to avoid all failures— And insisting on doing so can't be a winning strategy. It may guarantee you against losses, but it's likely to guarantee you against gains as well. Here's some helpful wisdom on the subject from Wayne Gretzky, considered by many to be the greatest hockey player who ever lived. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. There is no formulaic approach to investing that can be depended on to produce superior risk-adjusted returns. There can't be. In a relatively fair or efficient market, and the concerted efforts of investors to find underpriced assets tend to make most markets quite fair, asymmetry is reduced, and a formula that everyone can access can't possibly work. As John Kenneth Galbraith said, There is nothing reliable to be learned about making money. If there were, study would be intense and everyone with a positive IQ would be rich. If merely applying a formula that's available to everyone could be counted on to provide easy profits, where would those profits come from? Who would be the losers in those transactions? Why wouldn't those people study and apply the formula also? Or, as Charlie Munger told me, it's not supposed to be easy. Anyone who finds it easy is stupid. In other words, anyone who thinks it can be easy to succeed at investing is being simplistic and superficial and ignoring investing's complex and competitive nature. Why should superior profits be available to the novice, the untutored, or the lazy? Why should people be able to make above-average returns without hard work and above-average skill? and without knowing something most others don't know. And yet, many individuals invest based on the belief that they can. If they didn't believe that, wouldn't they index or, at a minimum, turn over the task to others? No, the solution can't lie in rigid tactics, publicly available formulas or loss-eliminating rules, or in complete risk avoidance. Superior investment results can only stem from a better-than-average ability to figure out when risk-taking will lead to gain and when it will end in loss. There is no alternative. Dare to look wrong. This is really the bottom line. Not whether you dare to be different or to be wrong, but whether you dare to look wrong. Most people understand and accept that in their effort to make correct investment decisions, they have to accept the risk of making mistakes. Few people expect to find a lot of sure things or achieve a perfect batting average. While they accept the intellectual proposition that attempting to be a superior investor has to entail the risk of loss, many institutional investors, and especially those operating in a political or public arena, can find it unacceptable to look significantly wrong. Compensation cuts and even job loss can befall the institutional employee who's associated with too many mistakes. As Pensions and Investments said on March 17th regarding a big West Coast bond manager currently in the news, whom I'll leave nameless, asset owners are concerned that doing business with the firm could bring unwanted attention, possibly creating headline risk and or job risk for them. One executive at a large public pension fund said his fund recently allocated $100 million for emerging markets, its first allocation to the firm. He said he wouldn't do that today, given the current situation, because it could lead to second-guessing by his board and the local press. If it doesn't work out, it looks like you don't know what you are doing, he said. As an aside, let me say I find it perfectly logical that people should feel this way. Most agents, those who invest the money of others, will benefit little from bold decisions that work but will suffer greatly from bold decisions that fail. The possibility of receiving an attaboy for a few winners can't balance out the risk of being fired after a string of losers. Only someone who's irrational would conclude that the incentives favor boldness under these circumstances. Similarly, members of a non-profit organization's investment committee can reasonably conclude that bearing the risk of embarrassment in front of their peers that accompanies bold but unsuccessful decisions is unwarranted given their volunteer positions. I'm convinced that for many institutional investment organizations, the operative rule, intentional or unconscious, is this. We would never buy so much of something that if it doesn't work, we'll look bad. For many agents and their organizations, the realities of life mandate such a rule. But people who follow this rule must understand that, by definition, it will keep them from buying enough of something that works for it to make much of a difference for the better. In 1936, the economist John Maynard Keynes wrote in The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, Worldly wisdom teaches that it is better for reputation to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally. For people who measure success in terms of dollars and cents, risk taking can pay off when gains on winners are netted out against losses on losers. But if reputation or job retention is what counts, losers may be all that matter, since winners may be incapable of outweighing them. In that case, Success may hinge entirely on the avoidance of unconventional behavior that's unsuccessful. Often the best way to choose between alternative courses of action is by figuring out which has the highest expected value, the total value arrived at by multiplying each possible outcome by its probability of occurring and summing the results. As I learned from my first textbook at Wharton 50 years ago, Decisions Under Uncertainty by C. Jackson Grayson, Jr. If one act has a higher expected value than another, and if the decision-maker is willing to regard the consequences of each act event in purely monetary terms, then this would be the logical act to choose. Keeping in mind, however, that only one event and its consequences will occur, not the weighted average consequence, Agents may not be able to choose on the basis of expected value or the weighted average of all possible consequences. If a given action has potential bad consequences that are absolutely unacceptable, the expected value of all of its consequences, both good and bad, can be irrelevant. Given the typical agent's asymmetrical payoff table— The rule for institutional investors, stressed previously, is far from nonsensical. But if it is adopted, this should be done with awareness of the likely result. Over-diversification. This goes all the way back to the beginning of this memo, and each organization's need to establish its creed. In this case, the following questions must be answered. In trying to achieve superior investment results... To what extent will we concentrate on investments, strategies, and managers we think are outstanding? Will we do this despite the potential of our decisions to be wrong and bring embarrassment? Or will fear of error, embarrassment, criticism, and unpleasant headlines make us diversify highly, emulate the benchmark portfolio, and trade boldness for safety? Will we opt for low-cost, low-aspiration, passive strategies? In the course of the presentation described at the beginning of this memo, I pointed out to the sovereign wealth fund's managers that they had allocated close to a billion dollars to Oak Tree's management over the preceding 15 years. Although that sounds like a lot of money, it actually amounts to only a few tenths of a percent of what the world guesses their assets to be. And given our fund's cycle of investing and divesting... That means they didn't have even a few tenths of a percent of their capital with us at any one time. Thus, despite our good performance, I think it's safe to say Oak Tree couldn't have had a meaningful impact on the fund's overall results. Certainly one would associate this behavior with an extreme lack of risk tolerance and a high aversion to headline risk. I urged them to consider whether this reflects their real preference— Lou Brock of the St. Louis Cardinals was one of baseball's best base stealers between 1966 and 1974. He's the source of a great quote Show me a guy who's afraid to look bad, and I'll show you a guy you can beat every time. What he meant, with apologies to readers who don't understand baseball, is that in order to prevent a great runner from stealing a base, a pitcher may have to throw over to the bag ten times in a row to hold him close rather than pitch to the batter. But after a few such throws, a pitcher can look like a scaredy-cat and be booed. Pitchers who were afraid of those things were easy pickings for Lou Brock. Fear of looking bad ensured their failure. Looking right can be harder than being right. Fear of looking bad can be particularly debilitating to an investor, client, or manager. This is because of how hard it is to consistently make correct investment decisions. Some of this comes from my last memo on the role of luck. First, it's hard to consistently make decisions that correctly factor in all of the relevant facts and considerations. That is, it's hard to be right. Second, it's far from certain that even right decisions will be successful, since every decision requires assumptions about what the future will look like, and even reasonable assumptions can be thwarted by the world's randomness. Thus, many correct decisions will result in failure. That is, it's hard to look right. Third, even well-founded decisions that eventually turn out to be right are unlikely to do so promptly. This is because not only are future events uncertain, their timing is particularly variable. That is, it's impossible to look right on time. This brings me to one of my three favorite adages. Being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. The fact that something's cheap doesn't mean it's going to appreciate tomorrow. It can languish in the bargain basement. And the fact that something's overpriced certainly doesn't mean it'll fall right away. Bull markets can go on for years. As Lord Keynes observed, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Alan Greenspan warned of irrational exuberance in December 1996, but the stock market continued upward for more than three years. A brilliant manager I know who turned bearish around the same time had to wait until 2000 to be proved correct, during which time his investors withdrew much of their capital. He wasn't wrong, just early, but that didn't make his experience any less painful. Likewise, John Paulson made the most profitable trade in history by shorting mortgage securities in 2006. Many others entered into the same transactions, but too early. When the bets failed to work at first, the appearance of being on the wrong track ate into the investor's ability to stick with their decision, and they were forced to close out positions that would have been extremely profitable. In order to be a superior investor... You need the strength to diverge from the herd, stand by your convictions, and maintain positions until events prove them right. Investors operating under harsh scrutiny and unstable working conditions can have a harder time doing this than others. That brings me to the second quote I promised from Yale's David Swenson. Active management strategies demand uninstitutional behavior from institutions – creating a paradox that few can unravel. Charlie Munger was right about it not being easy. I am convinced that everything that's important in investing is counterintuitive, and everything that's obvious is wrong. Staying with counterintuitive, idiosyncratic positions can be extremely difficult for anyone, especially if they look wrong at first. So-called institutional considerations can make it doubly hard. Investors who aspire to superior performance have to live with this reality. Unconventional behavior is the only road to superior investment results, but it isn't for everyone. In addition to superior skill, successful investing requires the ability to look wrong for a while and survive some mistakes. Thus, each person has to assess whether he's temperamentally equipped to do these things— And whether his circumstances, in terms of employers, clients, and the impact of other people's opinions, will allow it. When the chips are down, and the early going makes him look wrong, as it invariably will. Not everyone can answer these questions in the affirmative. It's those who believe they can that should take a chance on being great. April 8th, 2014 Thank you for listening to The Memo by Howard Marks. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Legal Information and Disclosures. This memorandum expresses the views of the author as of the date indicated, and such views are subject to change without notice. Oaktree has no duty or obligation to update the information contained herein. Further, Oaktree makes no representation, and it should not be assumed that past investment performance is an indication of future results. Moreover, wherever there is the potential for profit, there is also the possibility of loss. This memorandum is being made available for educational purposes only and should not be used for any other purpose. The information contained herein does not constitute and should not be construed as an offering of advisory services or an offer to sell or solicitation to buy any securities or related financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Certain information contained herein concerning economic trends and performance is based on or derived from information provided by independent third-party sources. Oak Tree Capital Management, LP, Oak Tree, believes that the sources from which such information has been obtained are reliable. However, it cannot guarantee the accuracy of such information and has not independently verified the accuracy or completeness of such information or the assumptions on which such information is based. This memorandum, including the information contained herein, may not be copied, reproduced, republished, or posted in whole or in part in any form without the prior written consent of Oaktree.